1: Big gym is his heels. For me, the only time I was really in a club that I didn't worry about, you know, are you going to get paid at the end of the month, was Leinster. Which over 20 years of professional rugby, that's only five years. The time when you're when you're going bad, you need to spend more, I think, if you can. I mean, and that's where that, at the moment what's happening is things are going bad and they're cutting, and and that can be dangerous, I think, in terms of the gap widening up. The farthest big thing is oh, everyone to be themselves, except you Johnny, you know what I mean? Because if you're yourself, sometimes people aren't ready to see that raw emotion, passion, drive. It's not just what he's done on the field, the record point score, it's it's the drive he's given every team he's played with off it, has had the biggest influence and, and is for me he's the greatest virtual player.
0: On this episode, I'm joined by one of my favourite Irishmen. One of the most powerful voices in rugby now. It's the wonderful, the legendary Bernard Jackman. I nearly got a job as a coach when I retired. I got offered the Edinburgh job with well, Cockers. Okay. I think Roddy Grant not I think, I know, Roddy Grant took the job. Not because I didn't get it, because he was next off the, yeah. the rank. But I like Roddy. Fellow, oh, he's really good, he's lad. done a good job, and also, yeah. Though. So, I've had him on this back, have you? In, yeah. Okay, like, right. last year when we were just piloting, okay. he's done a great job. Some shape on him, yeah, yeah, for a ginger pasty. <laughs> hey, leave the Botswani ginger I know, <laughs> I know uh, yeah, is that what you used to have ginger hair? Yeah. you used yeah, to, yeah, before i I wouldn't say, that. <laughs> is that why you shaved it off yeah, or totally,
1: not? Yeah, no, I I had a Caesar look, yeah, while, yeah. but it was like comical, you know. what I mean, oh, there's so much to do that. The tree, every morning,
0: you can be whatever now, to old turkey turkey uh, and the hair grows I'd have back. to pay three times with you and Goody paid I know I didn't get it done how you oh, know i no, sorry I might have done yeah, it's just a rumour I don't know uh, but Burn, how cool mate it's your you're like the fourth member now of the rugby pod boy band uh, we're, like, we're like a shitty 17 I'm
1: as, as a I'm what was the Friday night the, who are you when I was called up on stage the crowd chanted who are you who are you I actually nearly didn't turn up I um I listened to Gordon Smart's pod, your interview with Gordon yeah. Smart on the, on the plane and I was like haven't met Sam Rushdie. Haven't met Bono. Haven't met uh, Liam Gallagher. Who was it? How's Chris uh, Martin? Right. Insane. Um, what a Amy what a, Winehouse. What an interview. What a like gifted. If legit. No, no, even yeah, know, no, even legit. no. It's just his, his communication oh. style is is un- unreal. That was one where again going
0: out the comfort zone a little bit. Doing these podcasts yeah. again can talk rugby all day long. The same people, same humans, yeah. just look different like yourself. But with him, it was a new. I was taking a bit of a leap and I had George yeah. Groves, but again, athlete, right? Yeah. So boxer doing a podcast himself, but with him, real smart, well-read yeah. and again, the life lived, similar age, a couple of years older than than me, 42, 43 maybe, listened to a few things he was on and I, I knew it was a big step having him on because how do you have stories to compare or stuff to talk about? But yeah, he, yeah. Was, he was brilliant.
1: He was amazing, but also like even the little piece around the art of interviewing and making people feel relaxed. And it wasn't really clear who the interviewer was in that situation, in that mm. pod, to be honest. Like it was just very natural. It was like a privy to a conversation, but his his life experiences, you know, it was just uh, it was so good. I need to listen to it back. Yeah, and his delivery yeah.
0: as well. And I think that that is the art of podcasts, isn't it? And conversation is being able to have the ability to do that and have been able to... Digest and we were talking about accents. I actually said I didn't like Irish accents, didn't I? Did you hear that bit or not? I love Irish accents. <laughs> well, I've had Frank <laughs> Murphy in now, as well. That's what you're saying now. No, if I, if if th- Frank Murphy, or- I, yeah, I think I was more specifically on uh, <laughs> Liverpool, but I, you know, now I said that and I heard myself say that actually I don't mind Liverpoolian accents. But mate, anyway, back to the point. You're part of the you're part of the rugby pod crew now. You've been a great addition. Yeah, it's been fun. I've loved it. I
1: loved it. Yeah, got the late call to Belfast because you were snowed in and uh, enjoyed that with Stephen Ferris, and then Dublin and London last week. And what a weekend! I came from Cheltenham, Cheltenham to London, back to Dublin for Grand Slam.
0: That is part of it with the rugby pub. We travel a lot. We're on the road. We sound like bloody rock stars. We're not. We're like, it's <laughs> back to the point we're like a shitty 17. And that's what I mean. And you're the fourth <laughs> member now. But it's great. I've
1: never, never been, uh, never been said. I was, I was in a boy band. So old, old age men band.
0: Yeah. Do you prefer this stuff to coaching?
1: Yeah. I still love the game, which is really unusual for somebody who's like got sacked as a coach. I still coach. I coach at like a local club in Dublin, Beckett, involved in a school. I, I, I love punditry. Um, I love going to games. I love analysing. So, and that's unusual. Like you know, oh, I presume a lot of my players, their past uh, colleagues that I played with, a lot of them don't love the game anymore. They, you know, I don't know if they're bitter about the game, but they just have have left it behind them, and whether that's because it hurts or whether it's just if better things to be doing. Uh, but I'm not in that bracket uh, and I don't really miss coaching to be honest. Uh, I've had a couple of opportunities to get back. I think the longer you're away from it, the harder it is to get back obviously. But I'll give you the best uh, day I knew I, I didn't want to coach anymore. So I, used, I I ended up playing for Leinster. I'm from Leinster. And um, Leinster played the Dragons in the RDS and my son was the mascot with a friend of his. And... We got pumped, right? Like, Johnny, they played, Leo played a good team, and, and it was the wrong time of year for us to play. Them. We got pumped by 50 odd points or whatever. And for the next three or four weeks, I was just like mortified and angry and embarrassed. Anyway, I end up getting sacked, and I go back the following year uh, for Premier, and it was CoCom, right? Leinster Dragons in the RDS, Leinster won easy, you know, 50 points or whatever. But like, I, I closed my, my folder, and it wasn't my problem. You know, I got into my car I went home and it wasn't my problem it was Dean Ryan's problem and not that I wished problems on anyone else but that's the, the problem with coaching for me and maybe it's back down to me maybe it's my fault but effectively you can never close that folder it's literally 24 hours a day and particularly as a head coach and particularly if you're in a club that don't have much money there's money issues, you're managing up, you're managing down, you're letting players go, you're giving players bad news about the value of their contract. You can't give a guy who deserves a two year or one year because of uncertainty. And that's a killer, you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. you kind of want everyone to get as much as they deserve out of it. But when you're in a place where the budget is low, and I had an affair, it ended in Grenoble like that as well. So our sugar daddy died in Grenoble, a fellow called Serge Camp owned Gemini and Sajetti, So he sponsored and Grenoble, from Grenoble, friend of Serge Blanco's, and he passed away and we ended up having to ask the players mid-season to take a pay cut. Uh, I think it was 15% initially and ended up being 10 but then some players didn't agree to it. And just the way I saw it rip apart a dressing room, the way I had wives and girlfriends ring me up and tell me, you know, they can't pay off their mortgage now because that's where he came, like, particularly foreign players, a lot of South Africans come to france to with a real clear goal you know i want to get a french passport i want to pay off my mortgage i want to buy four houses or whatever it was and then suddenly you're i suppose you're the scapegoat or you're the front front man for this news that means they can't do that and that's pretty um that's a pretty shit place to be
0: yeah i mean the coaching world is just one in which looks so stressful it just looks like stress even if you are coaching and maybe it's more stressful coaching a good team.
1: Yeah, I think Leinster. Leo, we're both friends with Leo Cullen. Mm. Does a phenomenal job, um, and wins eighty-five, ninety percent of his games. This year, they're unbeaten. And yes, like over the last couple of years, I've felt so sorry for him because they've fallen at the final hurdle in Europe. You know, so he, he probably only gets one big setback a year, but I'm, I'm sure it has an effect on him. That that's the same as someone else losing ten games. You know what I mean? Because he probably he wants to lead Leinster to to more European trophies and. So yeah, I don't think no matter where you are, or like top or bottom, I think it's it's stressful. You
0: know? Wasn't your journey to go back to the farm? That was, we were chatting about it on the live show. Yeah. Did you fall uh, into coaching after? Was it just the opportunity was there or were you like, right, I've I've got an appetite for this? No,
1: yeah, I loved it. So basically, so just how I got into pro So I wasn't very good in school. Um, so my dad's a cattle leader, Ellis at 10, five boys, five girls. He had to leave school when he was 13. Um because his father had a stroke. So he left school and took helped my granddad uh run the business. So when I was growing up, I was kind of in the same milk. So I was on the farm six, seven, eight, nine, ten, going to cattle marts. Our local cattle mart is a place called Carnew on a Saturday. So I was there every Saturday. I was I bought my first beast at about six years of age, right? And uh, there's an Be- art to it because the beast. beast, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but the thing is, you see, um cattle dealers won't uh, they tend not to bid against a youngster right because it causes a bidding war. so if someone bid against me my dad would be after them for months right <laughs> and it would, it would drive up the price for they had to pay right so um i got to buy some cheap cattle when i was a kid so I'd, I'd always get to buy one a day kind of thing one one every saturday and um that was fine and i was my mom was worried that i wouldn't stay in school i wouldn't go to secondary school because she could see if a lorry came into the yard I'd leave the books and be gone and I mightn't come back until midnight so she convinced my dad to drop me to send me to boarding school and he dropped me off to boarding school the first day and uh, he said to me look if you want to come home next week no problem just ring me but just don't say I told you or whatever so I ended up going to boarding school playing sport and then by the time I was 18 it was kind of given it was taken as a given I would go home look at 18 you don't want to go back to the farm if you have other uh, opportunities so my friends were all going to Dublin or Galway or Limerick or, or Edinburgh or London to go to study so I basically said I'm going to study international marketing in Japanese, right? So, my dad said, "Why the f would you study that?" I said, "I'm going to sell beef to the Japanese for you, right?" So, went to Dublin for four years to study Japanese and international marketing. I was supposed to say my third year in Japan and and uh, rugby professional. Warren Gatling gave me a contract. Anyway, all my career as a player, he kept saying to me, "When are you coming home?" So, um, I'd love it. I had a few chances to play in France and uh, didn't take them because if you leave Ireland, you have no chance of playing for Ireland, and I want to play for Ireland. So. I said, I'd love to go there for as a coach for a year. So, when I retired, um, a friend of mine, like Andrew Farley, who played for Connacht, was captain of Grenoble, and it was an opportunity to go over there, right? So, I interviewed for the job, got the job. So, I went to Grenoble, and um I ring my dad every week, whatever, and we just talk, talk about cattle. If we talk about Ruby, he's no interest. Like, if he met Tiger Woods on the street, he wouldn't know who he is. Like, <laughs> he's, he's a legend, the hardest working man I know, inspirational, but no interest in sport. And um, I remember one day I rang him, and he said to me, What's the name of that place you're in again? And I said, Oh, uh, Grenoble and he he drives a lorry so maybe the hearing wasn't the sound wasn't that good so he said oh Pat Fox said there's no rugby over there so Pat Fox is a neighbour of ours so I said tell Pat Fox to F off right he wouldn't know one end of rugby off from another and then a few other times he said a few strange things but I just thought he was maybe losing it so I went home that summer went to Carnew Mart on the Saturday and at a cattle mart everybody crowds around the ring to buy the cattle so it might be two or three deep Close bodily contacts, like a mall, right? And Because um, everyone's trying to get in to to get to say that they're going to buy this one. As soon as I went to the ring, people just dispersed, right? 2011, right? So before COVID. So I was like, fuck, there's a rumor going around about me here or there's something going on. Maybe I smell. So I went to the auctioneer, a fellow called Arthur Quinn. I said, Arthur, what's going on? No one wants to be near me. Someone's spreading a rumor about me. And he, he just kind of rubbed his cheek chin for a while. And he goes, ah what do you expect? You're over there in Chernobyl coaching the rugby team. So, so uh, my dad, God bless him, had been telling people I was coaching in, in Chernobyl and obviously they said, no, he isn't. And I, I, I'm sure he, he's not the quietest man in the world. So I'm sure there's a few rows about it and uh, I'm sure we lost most deals. So uh, I ended up staying five years in Chernobyl, uh, top 14, and uh, it worked out okay. Great for my kids. My kids are bilingual. I'm, I still speak good French. and um, Yeah, loved I it. loved it. Good old Chernobyl. Chernobyl, yeah. Hey, Underrated. I know toxic toxic <laughs> environment so good japanese can you speak japanese no no but fuck, i'll tell you what um so basically i only did it for two years i was supposed to go to japan for my third year six months of college six months of work and then rugby and pro so i didn't do i didn't continue but in 2019 i got word that board bia which is basically like the irish food marketing board needed somebody to go to japan who had rugby beef and japanese right so I told my agent. I said, "Look, I'm the only one in Ireland who can do this." So I got the gig anyway. But I got over there, and I, I might have oversold my ability to speak <laughs> in Japanese. But I got over there, and uh, the lady said, "Oh, send through your presentation." So of course, send sent through a presentation which is English. And she goes, "Oh yeah, are you gonna, are you gonna speak in French in Japanese?" And I was there. Fuck no. She goes, "We've no translator." So anyway, we found we found someone who could translate for me. So um, yeah, I winged it to a certain extent. Mate, I tell you what, if. That would have come off yeah. the market in Japan. So I got my first cap for Ireland in 2005 in Japan, in Tokyo. So my dad flew in, right? So he, um, he flew in for the second test. I, don't, I just got married. He flew in with my father-in-law and my wife. And he went for a bit of a wander around Tokyo. And anyway, I met him in the team hotel that night. And uh, the first thing he said to me was, how the fuck could you not sell beef to these fellas? There's so many of them. <laughs> <laughs> I can just imagine him walking around Tokyo, looking up at skyscrapers, <laughs> crowds everywhere going, this is... Mana from heaven these lads must need beef yeah. you know but um uh, yeah so i theory i sold a little bit to them through through a conference but i wish i was able to sell a little bit to them every week yeah
0: i've never been to japan i yeah. wasn't there for the 2019 yeah yeah the last world cup i did some stuff there but it's it looks like a yeah, mental cool. great country yeah mental place i've been to hong kong mm-hmm. a few times quarter chinese as the listeners will know <sighs> interesting culture used to butt heads with family members when we talk about it but that's the Chinese but Japanese really interesting because my agent and I who helps me on this show we were talking about the state of rugby at the minute Mm. in the premiership especially as we know lost two teams in Worcester and Wasps Newcastle looks fucked Um, there was whispers of London Irish and a couple of others I think they might be all right now there's whispers of sale Leicester were struggling in fact they're all bloody struggling apart from Bristol, and maybe Saracens. But he said, for these young lads now, it's when the market opens, sounds like we're selling cattle, when the market opens for Japan, which is April, and that's where a lot of people now... Will go. Well, would they want to go, yeah. whether or not the opportunity is there for them, because they're big on... Big on big names. Big on big yeah. names and, and big players, tall sure. players, players that they don't produce. But really interesting market in rugby, I think.
1: Yeah, it's probably the only healthy... So the Irish market's healthy, but it's not open to non-Irish really. You know, you'll get the odd, you know, RG slime or whatever, but that's the challenge for those young Welsh, young English players because those two markets seem to be in a real period of readjustment is that, you know, the French want GIF or top names. You know, um, the Japanese tend to go for the the all-blacks, so obviously in the second division, third division, but um, it's a pretty frightening time to be off contract if you're a young rugby player who hasn't got a, a name. And a, like a, a book of experience. You know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think from what I'm hearing as well, it's, it's Pro D2 in yeah. France as well. There's money there.
1: But the only problem for youngsters in, in getting from England or Wales or Ireland going to Pro D2 is at the moment there's a big squeeze on the foreign players at top 14. So, you know, like uh, sometimes the top 14 players sign a foreign player, non GIF, on a two or three year contract and it doesn't work out. Or a kid comes out of the academy in the same position who's GIF, right? So they get more money back the more GIF players they play every week. right? So it's not just Jim is as good as Bernard or whatever. If one is GIF, he's bringing you money and the other's costing you money. So now what's happened is some of those top 14 clubs are willing to pay certain amount of that player's salary if they can find them a club in Pro D2. So the Pro D2 club is getting a 200 grand a year player for 100 grand a year. You know? and
0: the clubs paying yeah, there you know,
1: yeah those deals happen as you know but that's going to kill the kid you know who only wants 80 grand you know who maybe hasn't got the cv yes you know it's going to get harder to to find employment good employment yeah it's a,
0: it's a mad market like never seen before no. just on the french thing what what does gif
1: mean do you, do you know uh you issued center formation basically so a player who's come through your center formation so mm. you don't so paul williams so i signed paul williams for granola i'll tell you a story about this so right? recruitment in france is is loose so i used to look after the the foreign players right so i'd sign actually i wouldn't sign them but i'd have final say or at least made a rec- recommendation to my director Ruby fabrice landreau on on the foreigners right so Mike Prendergast, who's now the assistant coach at Munster, was uh, was the backs coach in, in Grenoble. He was getting married on a Friday. And the deadline for signing a player was the it was 6 o'clock on the Friday. So we were coming back on the Wednesday. And I said to my boss, Fabrice, are we done with recruitment? Right? And he goes, yeah, no no more money left, no more foreign player spots. right?" So I said, I'll leave my laptop behind. And he goes, yeah, no problem. So anyway, I landed in Dublin Airport and four missed calls from Fabrice. And he's like, oh, we can sign a second row, But he has to be young enough to go into the academy. Right. Um, and I said I thought we'd no money and he goes "Oh, the pres- the, the, our sponsor Serge campus is, is going to sign one player he feels we're a little bit short and, I, and he said we need a lock right?" so I said okay um, I, and he said who's on the market and he goes there's two guys on the market Thomas Levin- Levinini, okay. It was, it was only about 21 or 20 whatever, and Paul Willemsa. and I said oh, I don't really know much about Willemsa, but I know Lavenini but Argentina had played Ireland the previous week in a test match so I rang Paul O'Connell and I was there um, I said What's that? He played against, him and he goes, "Oh man, he's, he's like he fucking hits people like an elephant, right? He's a fucking monster, so aggressive. I've never met anyone's aggressive. He just all he want to do is kill me for a whole match. He'd be brilliant, right? He's only twenty or whatever." And um, I said, Pff, "Class, right?" So, um, so then I rang a friend of mine in the Bulls, and I said, "Oh, what's this kid Willem, so like?" And he goes, "Oh, he's twenty-one stone. If he gets a chance, he'd, like he puts you to hospital. Like he's mean. He's angry. He's got a chip on his shoulder. Um, he's like a rhino, right?" So. I was like, so I rang for and said, look at, in French, I explained to <laughs> him, I said, look at, Paul O'Connell said, this kid, this kid's like an elephant, fucking smashing people, horrible, nasty. And Paul Williams says, like, um, like a rhino. Uh, and I said, he said, which one do you want? I said, look at, uh, either of them, right? Like, we, we never had, like, we, we didn't have a big name squatter, right? So uh, I said, are they, how much are they? And he goes, oh, Lavenini's about 7,000 a month. And Paul Williams says, 20,000 a month, right? And I was there. <laughs> like our top paid player was at about 10 right so I said there's no question just sign Lavanini right we're not going to blow or double the wages for some fell on 20 grand based on one phone call I hadn't even seen any footage so it didn't ring me back he said okay I'll sign him I'll sign him so anyway I rang him next morning and said how'd you get on he goes oh no he's already got to Rassing right he's already signed for Rassing I said oh it's a pity um, it's a pity we couldn't get him whatever because I presume we can't get Paul Williams. so he goes oh let me speak to Serge right so he rang Serge uh, who's now passed away um, Lord of Mercy on him, and. Uh, Serge said, look, at, I want the club to stay up. I'm going to give you this player. I'm going to give you one player, right? So um, so we did a deal anyway for Paul Willems, so, um, And we signed him, or we did a deal with him, signed his contract. And his agent said, um, don't, we need him to start the season. But he was contracted to the Curry Cup. So the agent said, look, at, don't worry, I'll get him out of the Curry Cup contract. But of course, once he'd signed, we end up having to pay, I think, 200 grand to the Bulls to get him out. So if when you have no money, you know, but now he turned out to be, a monster like mm-hmm. so he was brilliant. so we end up selling him when we hit financial trouble we sold him to Montpellier for about quarter of a million he got a french passport after 5 years so now he's playing for france because they have a different rule than everyone else so you have to have a french passport but even though he's playing for france and he's captain france he actually is still a foreign player for his club because he didn't come through tr- he-, he didn't come into our academy young enough if you get me wild west wild west a rhino yeah. or an elephant yeah a rhino yeah. or an elephant i don't even know what that is in yeah. french <laughs> i had to ring him back to say which one are you going to go for? And he goes, I don't know. Who'd win a fight between a rhino and an elephant? And I was like, does it fucking matter? Just get me, just get me one. Yeah. You know? It's a hippo. Yeah, who'd yeah. win a fight? Exactly.
0: They're the hardest animals in the world or the scariest and nastiest. I'd rather be a rhino though. That looks much better. But it is the Wild West in France. Yeah. It really is. And rugby's in a really weird spot from that point of view. Like chatting to Wayne Pivak even from a coach. Yeah. And he was telling me it's like 35% pay cuts from a coach. And mm. all right. Fair enough. Can understand lads not getting contracts, but in France and Ireland, Ireland especially, it's this kind of closed off, like microcosm of success. Yeah. Let's start on Ireland because it's topical. And I was listening to you talk around the school stuff and what's mm. coming through, and the under twenties winning the Grand Slam. All the drama in England and the finances of the game just hasn't hit Ireland, has it? No. Why?
1: I, I would say there's probably very, very little pay cuts in Ireland. You know, I think players going back into renegotiate this year will be at least looking to hold their own and in some cases get upped. You know what I mean? So it, it's, it hasn't changed because, it hasn't been affected in Ireland because I suppose the model, it's the only professional sport in the, in the country. Um, our international players play at home. So, you know, historically, if you wanted to go watch an Irish soccer player, you had to get on a plane to Manchester to watch Roy Keane or Dennis Irwin or whatever. So that's the benefit of, so people can bring their kids to watch Johnny Sexton play in the RDS or Peter Manny playing in Toman Park. So we've done a great job of keeping them at home. So part of that was the rule where if you left, you were gone. But to be honest, very few players would have got offers that outweighed the offers that the RFU gave them. I know there's big money in France, et cetera, but realistically Johnny went for a couple of years, but in general, Irish players get paid what they're worth. And also we have a, a tax break for professional sports people in Ireland. So if you play for every year you play in Ireland, up to your maximum of your 10 best, you get 40% of the tax you pay back at the end. So what you do is you, you file your tax return with an accountant or whatever, and then you wait. Okay. And then one day you'll hear the, the postman come and there'll be an envelope there and you open it up and it might be for me, 2001, like a, I was on shit money or whatever, and it's four or five grand. But then you open it up and like a week later, you get two envelopes, you know, for 2008, 2010, and it could be. 40,000 or 80,000 or whatever it is um, which is pretty cool and it's funny the way it, it works and comes in so that's a big incentive for fellas so you know if you've played 15 years in Ireland you handpick the best 10 and it's a big um I suppose driver of keeping players at home plus if you're playing for Ulster Munster or Connacht or Ulster Munster Leinster in particular you have a chance of winning you know a URC or or maybe even a, a Champions Cup Connacht maybe less so but obviously they've won a URC in, or won a Pro 14 and could win a challenge cup, maybe. So, and also, most of the players are playing for where they're from. The majority of the Leinster squad are from Leinster, majority from Dublin, but most of them are from Leinster. And then they bring in the James Lowe's, the Gibson Parks, the, the Scott Fardy's, you know, that can basically make a difference or get them, get them over the line. Um, so it's, there's that attachment as well, that sense of identity, which probably, I think Edinburgh and Glasgow obviously can have it because, you know, if you grew up in Edinburgh, Glasgow, you know you're from Edinburgh, Glasgow. Um, if you grew up in near Leicester, you're from there, etc. cetera, Gloucester. But that's changed in, in most other pro games, most of other pro teams. It's it's a mixture of everybody and that, that can be good for diversity and for new ideas. But I think it works well in Ireland because, as I said, you have 80%, 90% of your players from their strong attachment to it and then you bring in people who can either give you something off the field or give it to you on the field. If you're getting moved on
0: from Leinster, which we've seen mm. happens, you're begging not to go to Ulster, aren't you? You're like, please don't send me there because of the tax. Surely, <laughs> if you're, you've are you got your head screwed yeah. on, you'd be like, I'll yeah, go to Connor. I want to be part of the building process in Ireland. Send me to Connor. Do not send me <laughs> to Ulster.
1: And I think, to be honest, I presume they pay premium. I presume the Ulster branch have to... Understand. Yeah, understand. And not maybe not give you everything, but you have to make it worth your while. So, and if, like obviously players will factor that in, you know what I mean? That money coming back at the end of their career. So, if they're leaving that, that model in the south, the three provinces, you'd have to imagine Ulster would have to pay a little bit more than they would, than Leinster or, or Munster or or Connacht would.
0: Can you share what some of the players get paid from a very superficial high-end player point of view? And again, this million-pound player, we've seen that in the Premiership with Charles Piatow, Randra, we're hearing Marrow, and Owen Farrell-Upper at 750. Dan Bigger, when he was at Northampton, was around that number. George Ford, probably not too far away. Big numbers that have now come down from what we're hearing. But maybe they're not the ones that have been affected. It's the... The group below that, and then the group below that, where these hundred grand contracts are now 35, 40 grand.
1: Yeah, I think I don't look. I don't know if we have a million pound player. Um, no, no, I don't. I presume when Sexton came back from Rassing between everything, you know, off field, and and I'm sure I'd imagine someone that was locked in in terms of guaranteed income that that should have been. I'd imagine if he's not getting close to a million, no one, no one, no one ever will. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think in average, I think there's a lot of lads on you know north of 350 400 plus then you know i don't know what to get for win the grand slam 80 90 grand or 100 grand a man based on if they played the five games mm. you know what i mean and there's opportunities to there's, there's good commercial opportunities in in ireland for for those big name players the connor murrays the peter mannies etc um and then obviously you've got the next crop the kieran Doris's who will start to move into that bracket but i don't think it's always the be on end all of the final number and obviously that's really important but i think it's the stability you know the chance to play for your, for your country and the extra money you get from that, but also the, the chance of hopefully doing something like they did it on the weekend, win the Grand Slam. And I know we haven't we've only won one for them, but you you kind of feel at the moment that it's in that team every year. If you if you get me, you know what I mean. You don't. I don't think. Obviously, it's it's cyclical, but I think if you were to play for Ireland for the next ten years with a bit of luck, some of those lads might pick up three or four Grand Slams.
0: It's also the incentive for these young lads coming through the greatest team in yeah. the world in world rankings number one financially more stable than any other nation yeah
1: when I was in Connacht the RFU were thinking about disbanding him, so there was a march right so that was a, an instable period financially at the start of professional rugby then I went to Sail Sharks and our first year was quite dodgy financially and um uh, Kennedy bought a club right so he gave us he he put money in, and Jason Robinson signed, etc. And Brian Redpath. So there was a there was a burst of enthusiasm and 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 belief. But I think Sale historically had been a club with, you know, worries about financial financial issues before he came in, and obviously there's new owners now. And then I went to Grenoble. Grenoble had been put into when Dean Richards coached Grenoble, they went to the administration because the president um, falsified accounts. So they went down to Federal One, right? So when I got there, our president was unbelievably. Uh, prudent and didn't want to spend anything that he wasn't sure we would have um, and if it wasn't really his fault our, our sugar daddy passed away and he was putting about 3 million a year in so Grenoble ended up in financial trouble and then I went to the Dragons who weren't like we, we knew we were going to get paid because we are owned by the WRU but the Dragons had gone to near within nearly 48 hours of administration you know and that the hangover of that so like for me the only time I was really in a club that I didn't worry about you know are you going to get paid at the end of the month was Leinster which over twenty years of professional rugby, that's only five years, you know. So it's the game is still really finding its its feet, um, and it's taking a long time. But uh, like that's that's a, only a quarter of my career. I was where, somewhere where you were sure there there was a, there was the capacity to have a professional rugby team. Where have they got it right then, commercially,
0: amongst all the other teams, like that? The the money, the salary that you mentioned, yeah. in, but the the ecosystem and the infrastructure. From top to bottom just seems razor sharp. sharp.
1: It is, yeah. it is. So I think commercially, the you have, have um, very smart people who have, um, I suppose, capitalized on the brand that Irish Rugby has or Leinster Rugby has or Munster Rugby has. So Munster Rugby in itself is a phenomenal brand. Like they did one of the biggest deals with Adidas back in the time and, and Toyota, you know, obviously based on historical success rather than current success. But rugby in Ireland at the moment is seen as being a very good brand. To be in bed with, um, and obviously the top commercial organisations are willing to pay for that privilege. Um, our stadium isn't you know our stadium's co-shared with 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 the soccer, and obviously the, the government puts some money in, so we're not laden down by stadium debt, which some some unions are. Um, they own quite a bit of property around the around Aviva, the which is you know property that's gone up in value. A lot of invest a lot of the pro- the cost that other unions might have of developing younger players is born by parents paying fees in school. So unfortunately, despite the, f- the efforts to to get new players from different areas, still a lot of the best players are coming out of private schools in Ireland where they're getting like professional coaching. So Johnny Murphy's coaching my old school. Um, Tommaso Leary is coaching Clongo. And there's guys who aren't ex-pros who are brilliant coaches, coaching in school, giving these players the environment that prepares them to be Irish in their 20s or you know or the next Josh Render Free or Caelan Doris or Dan Sheen,
0: yeah. My mate went to watch the Scotland Island under 20s match and he said it was like the easy analogy men against boys, but he said the athleticism yeah. and the size and the mid the glutes, yeah. the hamstrings, the legs, the power.
1: Jim, well, I, I co-combed on that game. Sorry, I, I worked in the studio in that game and I actually, I, I at actually half-time, feared for some of the Scottish. Kids like it was dangerous. Policy. Yeah, my mate said uh, to it uh, looked uh, dangerous. I don't, I don't say that lightly and I'm not, you know, I, I don't go around looking to dramatise things, but it, uh, there was a bad injury during the game, but that's how physically different they were, which is insane, really. That's what my mate said. My yeah. mate said it, it was dangerous.
0: And for me, that's the worry with Scottish rugby. You look at the results mm. and you look at the flip of the table, like Italy, under-20s now, the programmes that they've got coming through, you're starting to see that transfer into the national team. I'm wondering when you look at the under 20s, which is the evolution, that's what happens. That group of players in a year, two, three, probably four years' time is going to come through and play against the same players that yeah. they've been playing against at under 20. That's what it is. That is
1: yeah, I think, I think the circle ca- of life. Yeah, I didn't catch up. I mean, if you obviously get it, those best, those 20, as long as they have athleticism or athletic ability in their, in their genes, you know, they go into a good program at 20, by 23, they should catch up. But. You'd wonder, I don't know, you know more than I do, but like, how's it got to that? How how, how have they got to that stage where they represent their country under their 20s level and they look, not all of them, but some of them look physically underprepared? And I'm not blaming them either. It's just, like, where, where's the pathway? Like, how can that happen? And it's not them, it's Wales as well. I mean, yeah, Wales whoa. against France, yeah. France in their 20s, and I. even uh, their head coach came out and said, Look, at, these kids are giving us everything they have. They just, Byron Haywood, um, who, who used to, we assistant coach for the Welsh national team, Scarlett, knows his stuff. And he said, these kids are giving us everything they have, they just don't have the ability, the ability or the raw physical ability more so to, to compete. Well, it comes back to the exposure as well. So the French system
0: is, I think in that under-20 squad, there's a 100-odd caps in the top yeah. 14 compared to where are these young Welsh lads no, no, They haven't
1: played. They haven't played regional rugby. No.
0: And chatting to Jim Mallinder, who's now in the performance side of things with the SIU, he's said like this under-20s needs to be treated like the third pro team in Scotland or Wales needs to treat it as a professional environment because everything now in rugby, the the biggest evolution is the athleticism, yeah. is the size, is the power, is the speed. And back in the day when we were playing, you'd be in your prime around 30. Do you know what I mean? That would be like I said, I'm in my prime at 30 going into 31, 32. These lads are now in their prime at 23, 24. Like look at Doris as he's coming yeah. through that kind of evolution is So much younger and the profile is so much younger. I don't know what the answer is. It is the million-dollar question, isn't it? And this is where there's going to be a fall-off or there's going to be a drop-off between the top teams and Everyone else and New Zealand a few years ago were leading that charge and maybe that's where Ireland for example Maybe looked at the blueprint of how they played Embedded that into the national team whilst getting everything else in order through, through the schools and being in the UK, being in Edinburgh, and being mates with a few of the Irish players, obviously listening to you talk as well, it all comes down to and people don't like it. Comes down to what I think is investment. So people willing to invest in the game, invest in the school system. And again, you can maybe correct me. The rumours are out there, but aren't some of these coaches getting paid professional salaries to coach these young kids at school coming through? Yeah.
1: yeah well, look. So I, I would, I would have known what the salaries were for some of the assistant coaches in in the region, rugby in Wales. There's certainly, you can earn more than that in a private school, um, in, in Ireland. Not every school, but, uh, you know, for the right person. Um, but also it's a pathway. So you're getting coaches who say, do I want to coach an, an A, senior men's amateur team or do I want to coach a schools team? What can get me into a, into a Leinster Academy as a, as a, and a coach? It's probably the schools. So, cause you've got a relationship with those academy coaches, you know, you're maybe looking after four or five. Irish schoolboys or Irish under And so you're, you're constantly uh, communicating with them they see what you're doing they see if you're good and then you have this this competition where you know the best schools in, in Ireland play against each other in knockout rugby in front of five 6,000 people past. it's kind of a bit like collegiate sport in, in, uh, in America where past pupils really care about it like I, I know people who who left school 30 years ago and they're more concerned or more interested in how their old school do in a cup than maybe how Leinster do. You know, it's, it's amazing the attachment because they played schools rugby and they never played afterwards or, or they had such a great time there. So there's that investment there. And also from a, I suppose, pupil point of view, the schools who fall off the radar as rugby schools in terms of how the first team competes or the junior cup team competes, they start to lose enrollment. So parents stop sending their kid there because the rugby program isn't as good as it was. So you have this internal competition. Um, that's driving investment. Um, and the RFU don't have to pay for that in fairness to them. So like that's, that's, that's a, and you could say it's luck or whatever, but there's a lot of investment being made by, by schools, which is funded by fees or past pupils or whatever to drive success. And then the kids are the ones who benefit from that coaching, that S and C, you know, um, that nutrition, that video analyst, the physio, that mental, mental, um, uh, coach access that some of them have. They have everything. They have everything. They're like mini academies uh, at 15, 16, 17.
0: Oh, it's unreal to hear mm. whether or not it is through fault or design that that system, yeah. but success breeds success. That's what you hear, don't you? Like it's Once the momentum gathers like that, and you do see it in American sports, you see it, like you said, if you look at the like, Notre Dame, like yeah. when you watch some of the, that stuff online about how they sell out the stadiums, even the, the college basketball matches, and that success of being an athlete at that young age, and you can see, end of the tunnel, right. there's a 750 grand, potentially a million pound contract. Yeah, You can see that in Ireland now, yeah. we're talking about it. You can see the success with, which comes with grand slams and profile and the momentum of it is scary from yeah. that island side of things. Yet on the flip side in England, how quickly the demise has happened. Yeah, it, it's, a- it's just come around, So I can't, can't get my head around yeah, what's happening people talk about investment so they're like yeah well you can't just have sugar daddies paying the amount of money it's not sustainable in my opinion it's like well what is sustainable in sport mm. if there's no investment like yes the romance around everything being commercially viable but the growth of the game and the appetite to want to be a player if at the end of it and excuse people who don't earn this kind of money but if the maximum earning potential is a hundred grand mm. you'd be like well you know what there might be better ways to do that. The vulgarities of it that people don't want to hear or actually there's a million pound at the end of the tunnel here yeah. or there's this 500 grand contracts available. If you keep on this path and everything that comes with that success of winning things, it becomes a viable career want. You want to be that. And again, people don't like me saying that because it comes down to the money aspect of yeah, it. Yeah,
1: look. so look at Wales, right? So Gatlin came into Wales and he was given a really good budget for the high-performance unit, right? So they built, you know, this training centre in the Vale, which at the time was state-of-the-art indoor training centre. And every year, he tried to add to it. So hyperbaric chambers, you know, going to Spalin in Poland, they invested in preparing that Welsh national team. They had Under Armour kit. The principality was sold out. Also, at the same time, the regions were spending more money than they are now, right? So they were able to keep Dan Bigger, they are able to bring in uh, Jerry Collins, for, just use the Ospreys as an example, but, you know, Cardiff had Xavier Rush, they were able to get some of the best foreign players in, in the world to come to play in Wales, plus they are able to keep most of their young talent, obviously, like Cefalotau left of, uh, at, at one stage, but now, even if they invest massive amounts of money in the, in the performance side of it, because the regional game has been let die or starved of cash, the, the cattle aren't there for... Wayne Pivak or, or for Warren Gatland round two. So, and that's the problem. And, and, and you know, it, it like like Ireland and France aren't going to wait. They're not going to go, oh, look, at spin on unfair. We're spending more than Wales or, or Scotland. All they care about is winning, right? They're driven by performance and results. So they're going to invest. So if you're England or Wales or Scotland, unfortunately, that's, that's the reality of it. So if you have to find money through benefactors, if you have to borrow money, You know, remortgage your assets to be able to get to that level where you're competing, winning, being able to then, you know, um, sell out stadiums, do better sponsorship deals, commercialize things in a better way. The reality is if, if it's a, if the, if it becomes two tiers in the six nations, and again, this is, it's one season, right? There's two seasons really where we can go. There is a bit of a divide, right? And, who's to say that, you know, Scotland or Wales won't bounce back into that or England won't bounce back in. But at the moment, you would fear a little bit given what's happening in particularly Wales and England. Like the time when you're when you're going bad, you need to spend more, I think, if you can. You know what I mean? And that's where, and at, at the moment, what's happening is things are going bad and they're cutting and, and that can be dangerous, I think, in terms of that gap widening up mm. quite quickly. And it's very hard to close that gap. And maybe it's too late because, Sorry, maybe that gap is already widened up when you see the Scotland under twenties and the Wales under twenties, and how they are competing with Italy and uh, and Ireland and England. But it's it's a dangerous time for some countries in terms of staying at the top table. I think sounds dramatic again, but you, well, you it, it absolutely you look, is, you look like it. at it and you go, this isn't the time to cut costs, cut costs, cut costs yeah, because it will get dangerous. Yeah, you
0: think you see that again? So again, think of the next Ireland players coming through next year's under twenties or the year after that, and if it's on the same path. The lads are going to be more... It's going to be
1: dangerous. They like say the, next year's under-20s are, are the best crop <laughs> for, for a while. You know what I mean? Now, <laughs> in fairness, we're the opposite of the French. So the French are getting to play top 14 or pro D2. Our lads don't haven't really played yet, but that's because the, Ireland is, is obviously highly invested, but also competition, right? So those lads from Leinster who were in that under-20s team, they haven't made the academy yet. A couple of them have, but the majority of them are fighting to get into an academy. So Leinster only make a decision in general, bar the odd superstar... When a kid has finished under 20s rugby, right? So you're making a bet, I I presume in, in, in England, you give a kid an academy contract at 18, whatever, right? Because you have to or else someone else will, right? Whereas Leinster are quite lucky in that a lot of those players are willing to stay until they're 20. So if you're making a decision at 20 on a kid, you have a far better chance of making the right decision than when the kid is 18, you know, because you've had them for two years Mm -hmm. under your wing in a sub academy, training at six o'clock in the morning, seeing what they're like, you know, personality wise, seeing what they're like in terms of are they robust, seeing how they've grown over two years. Um, so that's so they're getting to make a better choice. Get, they take five a year, roughly, right into the into the academy, and then they're not made then because there's two lad, There's two years ahead of them who are brilliant, right? Um, the senior team aren't bad, right? So there's no there's no real jokers in, in that side. And then what they say in Leinster is, yeah, keep an eye on what's in front of you, but keep you know a better eye on what's behind you. So you're just getting squeezed all the time. So if you have a bad six months, there mightn't be a future for you, you know? And if you get let go by Leinster, okay, obviously other teams will pick you up, but that's their dream is to play for their home province. Um, and it's the same in Munster and Ulster, but it, it, the competition that's there and the, probably the fact that a lot of kids are in university, don't want to leave Ireland, just makes them so focused and driven to succeed. And then you get the, the diamonds come true then. Any diamonds
0: you picked up? Is there any lads that we should be looking out for? No,
1: there's, well, as there's a kid under 20s, Sam Prendergast, the 10. Mm. Um, he's outstanding. So I, he's from my old school. Johnny Murphy coached him. Um, his brother's Keane Prendergast, who plays for Connacht. Mm. Both parents, um, at least uh, in the army in Ireland, mum and dad has everything, you know. But And he, like, he wants to stay in Leinster, but he's fifth choice in Leinster at the moment. But he, he wants to replace Johnny Sexton, so he'll stay. He'll stay on, he'll stay probably for three or four years. And give it everything he has, and obviously if it doesn't work out, then he'll go somewhere else. But he has—he's he, talented.
0: What's he like? What does he look like? Is he good-looking? Tall? tall. Yeah, of course. Yes. Yeah,
1: good-looking. <laughs> tall. Um, What's his point of difference? All-rounder. Temperament. Mm. Temperament and goal kicking, game understanding. He's—he's he's, like. So I, I did a thing with Johnny uh, Johnny Sexton in November, and I did one with Easton Asiwa who was a very good Leicester player about four years ago, and he said. Give me a player that no one in this room knows, and he gave me like a guy called Jimmy O'Brien. And that week, Jimmy O'Brien played this, got a cap for Ireland against South Africa. And I said, I told the story and said, Johnny, Issa gave me Jimmy O'Brien. You give us someone, and he gave uh, Sam Prendergast. And this is mm. before I obviously knew him from school because he's my old school. But he blew up in his twenties. He was man of the match, I think in the first four, of the first 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 four games. And yeah. this one's just yeah, gone, class. yeah.
0: And that's the million dollar question yeah. around who is going to replace Johnny Sexton long term, mm. and Ross Byrne has come in and filled that. I just don't know how much of the keys to the kingdom when you've got Johnny in that squad he's been given. So from the outside looking in, you're like, well, where are the Achilles heels for Ireland? The only one that I can see, and this is no disrespect to Ross, this is just going based on historic and where we are now, the importance that Johnny Sexton can be in the team, even if he's 40% fit. So how good is Ross Byrne, the fact that Andy Farrell isn't putting him in? Yeah earlier or, or, or what have you so is there another 10 that can be the next Ron Nogara or Johnny Sexton which is the keys to the kingdom of winning as we say you look yeah. at all the 10s the great 10s gone by have the biggest influence on sure. winning, winning World Cups which yeah. is what Ireland want to do
1: look I don't, I don't think Ross won't be a Ron O'Gara Johnny Sexton because you know he's eight or nine years too late so he, he was on I, I coached him in school he was on the same team as Dan Levy he had balls of steel then that's his, that's his point of difference he just he wants responsibility he wants a kick in the last minute from the touchline um, to have to decide whether Ireland go through in the quarterfinal he wants that not many people want that so that's that's his point of difference and that's a great point of difference to have as a 10 and especially being in the shadows of Johnny Sexton totally. and he would back himself so and amazingly so he was he was in, then he was out. He was out for two years. and They were looking at Billy Burns. They were looking at Harry Burns, his yeah, brother. Like, Harry Burns went to New Zealand ahead of him. Mm. But Lencer always rated Ross ahead of Harry. It was just interesting. It was like Andy Farr was thinking, right, Joey Carby is the backup to Johnny. Why would I bring Ross Burns as third choice? Because of his age profile, even though he's not old. But you know, Harry was a younger model, very talented player. So, um, But against Australia in the third uh, match in November... Johnny pulled out and Joey Carberry pulled out. Jack Crowley started, who's a youngster, very talented. And Harry and Ross Byrne got on the bench. And he got on with 20 minutes to go and he kicked a kick at the end to beat Australia. And that was like the moment that I think Farrell said, All right, as a backup to Johnny, we need someone who's been there, done that. plays. He's played a good few URC finals because he plays most of the URC games during the year because Johnny's obviously they they manage his game time. Um so it looks like now short term or maybe the next two years he's going to be the man to replace Johnny. But your question is who's the next Johnny Sexton? Who's the next Ronagar? Who's the next Dan Bigger? That's not clear, to be honest. Um the kid in Munster, Jack Crowley looks like he has it all. And of course, and the most importantly as well what the coaches and players who train or play with him say is he has big game temperament but we just haven't seen that to the same level as as Ross Byrne because he's only he's only young he's only 21 22.
0: Do you think the ten's as important as I've said there? Massively. Yeah,
1: massively. And like I think England what England do 10 wise whether they go stay with Farrell or whether they bring forward back obviously Smith that's going to make or break England Finn and 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 you know Finn obviously in Scotland him being on a him in on a good period of form in in, in um at yeah, the World Cup, it's still massive. It's actually, I know Ireland have tried to become less reliant on Johnny um, in terms of w- way we play, you know, not so much going through him, but we're still massively dependent on him.
0: Absolutely. You mentioned Scotland there. We've seen how important that relationship with Finn and Gregor has been and the importance of Finn, not just on the pitch, but also galvanising the nation to put in some big wins. Dan Bigger being dropped for Owen Williams. You just mentioned the headline one, then England are going into a World Cup. And do that. I think he knows that it's Farrell mm-hmm. 10, Tuolangi 12, and Slade or a Marchion at 13. Maybe you've got a few different options there. It shows you, like, you're right, I've answered my own question, like the importance of that 10. Like New Zealand, you could say as well, like with yeah. Bowden Barrett, Richard Mwanga, yeah. not really knowing. And then you've got Ireland, right? They know that Sexton Iffit, France, Untamak, even though Jalibert yeah. and some parts of the Six Nations came on and made a huge difference. So I've just answered the question of the importance of the ten, and that brings me on to ask about it because it is the big old debate. You know, is Johnny Sexton the greatest player to play for Ireland? And there's been some yeah. great players.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, for me, now he is for sure. No, I don't think anyone can. Obviously, loads of people debate it, but I think it's clear because he's led Ireland to a Grand Slam at whatever 38 years of age. J- Brian O'Driscoll, Ron Lagara, Paul O'Connell. You know Jackie Kyle, you know back in Mike Gibson, they were all phenomenal players. And Paul, fairness to Paul O'Connell, like Paul O'Connell was an unbelievable leader, and 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 made everyone better, and and dro- drove things as they all did in their own way. To be fair, but I think Johnny, Johnny's had the capacity to basically win a game on his own. Like for example, Northampton Heineken Cup final in Cardiff, where whatever we were twenty points down at halftime, he's the one in the dressing room who who basically says we're going to win this. I think he was talking about, he's a Liverpool fan, talking about Istanbul or something. But, um, and then he went out and just like had a, a Ryder Rovers type second half. And that's, that's been the thing I was looking up to play with him. His influence in the dressing room, training, meetings. He's a really emotional guy, but very emotionally intelligent. He he, 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 he's a good orator. He knows what to say at the right time, doesn't talk for the sake of talking. So when he speaks, it's powerful. People want to follow him. It was interesting. So, uh, Andy Farrell, you know, the biggest one of the biggest things he's done with his Irish team is, and apparently it, it's it's smart probably because, well, because under Schmidt, um, it became very intense, um, uh, and and Johnny actually liked that kind of feedback, direct feedback, whatever, but, um, Farrell is basically a big thing about everyone just be themselves, right? So, um, personalities, character is allowed to come out, right? And they, they, they have a lot of fun. They spend time understanding each other and they have a lot of fun together. It's relaxed at the right time. and serious at the right time. And, um, but Farrell's big thing is, uh, oh, everyone to be themselves except you, Johnny, you know what I mean? Because if you're yourself, sometimes people aren't ready to see that raw, emotion, passion, drive. Whereas, you know, you've been in lots of dressing rooms where we understand that sometimes you don't have time to say things nicely. You just need to fucking know what to do. And Johnny's Mm -hmm. capable of, of doing that because, you know, he, he doesn't mess around, but how he, you know, how he deals with referees, how he talks post-match, how he maybe talks pre-match, how he fights with opposition. I think Faz is trying to get him not to show that emotion, in those situations, you know what I mean? To be more poker face, to protect himself because Johnny, it's only now I think everybody really appreciates kind of what he's done for Leinster and Irish rugby um, because for a while there, two or three years ago, even Irish fans were saying, why isn't he retired? He's blocking somebody else and, you know, he's getting injured, it's not fair in his family. Eddie Jones had a few pops on him and things like that. So, But now it's changed. Now everyone has a far better idea of how good a bloke he is, how likeable he is and they're starting to see the real side of him but I think it's brilliant leadership by Faz to be able to try and protect Johnny and you know make him a better leader even though like who gets a better who becomes a better leader at 35, 36, 37, 38 but I think Sexton is and, that, and he was already a good one so for me it's not just what he's done on the field the record point score it's it's the drive he's given every team he's played with off it has had the biggest influence and, and is for me he's the greatest Irish player
0: Yeah I agree for the reasons you've just said there, like you've you've wrapped it up all into one. And the fact that someone like Andy Farrell and the standing that he has in the game, the pedigree as a player, as a father, yeah. uh, that he's produced Owen as well, that he has allowed Johnny Sexton to migrate his way through a sticky time where his body isn't and definitely wasn't quite right, the, the head concussions yeah. that he's been through, uh, the pressure of the media, whilst... Allowing him as captain, not to pick and choose, but to find his space within the number one team in the world. And the fact that Andy Farrell has allowed that shows you the importance of him. Uh, it's it's unbelievable to watch. I tell you what, after the Six Nations, this is the first Six Nations, and maybe because maybe it is his last Six Nations. First time ever we've seen him let his hair down. And he's yeah. shown that on his social media with his kids, Uh, the interaction between his son and Mac Hansen as well, behind the scenes. I don't think we've ever seen that before. We've never seen that. And that's nice and that's important as well because we see that kind of human side. And this is the thing, it's easy to pass judgment. Oh, you know, look at his face. We've done it with Owen Farrell before, that kind of serious, you know, been stung by a wasp style look. Mm. And this is the difference of when you have to have that front and that persona, Going back to the analogy of a Michael Jordan and these individuals in team sports, but the top of the top, the best of the best, which Johnny Sexton clearly is, you don't make people like that. So therefore, you're not going to be like everyone else, are you? Because no one is like you, like you are up there as one of the goats. And that is the reason why is because you are different. He's different to everyone else.
1: He's different. Than everyone else is right, and I think we're we're, we're seeing he's like deeply proud. For, I think what last week we've kind of got an insight into two legends, Farrell's family, like the the dynamics of him having the grandkids. They were I don't know if you read this, but um the grandkids came over to to granddad's right before the Ireland uh, England game. So uh, Owen's kids, and he brought them to the Irish captains' run. You know, in Irish jerseys, and so that funny. dynamic. And then Faz after the match, he okay to, to that-
0: that human interaction yeah. between father and son—it's amazing. Got, like, got where made. do
1: you see that? You know, you might see it at a junior club, or it's like, and but it's not the dynamic of your dad's coaching another country for a grand slam to beat the team your are captain of. Like, it's it's so interesting and, and fascinating. And then Johnny's dynamic of like his family and like his rule with the kids are: that you can only be on the pitch if they win. Mm. You know what I mean? So, like, you know, imagine like Johnny Sexton's kids should be on the pitch. Whenever they want, right? But that's the rule he has as as a dad and discipline and things like that. But I um I think Farrell is big into the, into this whole thing about family. So like uh, every player, whether they were the star player or whether they're number forty seven of the people who came into camp to train. So they had forty seven players in camp. They all had their their families there. When, when you couldn't get a ticket for Gold Dust, right? So Farrell would have spent a week trying to find ways of getting everybody who needed to be there in, right? Whereas a lot of head coaches will just go, look at them, focused on England. Um, like I, I was in a press box and there was, there was players who trained with Ireland over the course of the the Six Nations in the press box, you know, because they couldn't get tickets. But far, a lot of organisers to get there. So, um, and then I, I know that with the whole, so Johnny's, Johnny's young fellow that was on TV with Mac. His name is Luca. And uh, Johnny got his 100 capture in COVID. He, there was, the crowd, there was, the stadium was empty. I can't remember who he's playing against. The stadium was empty. It couldn't bring people in to um commemorate that during week during the week so what farrell did was he he got uh johnny's wife laura to make videos right so get a load of video messages from his dad his under 12s coach anyone who's important to johnny and, and that on thursday night he always did a thursday night in carton house which is where they train and they're in a bubble a really strict bubble so the first video was luca you know daddy um so proud of you you're making 100 cap i wish you could be there but it's COVID. There's going to be no one there, and but don't worry, we'll be watching on TV. And then it goes on to lots of other p- people are important to Johnny. And then the last clip was was Luca again, and on the on the screen he goes, "Daddy, I think I found a way in." And next thing, the doors open. Oh, no. and he ran up whatever. And like apparently, it wasn't dry out in the house, right? But that doesn't cost anything. Okay, you broke COVID rules, or whatever. <laughs> right? But but it doesn't cost anything. But Farrell was like you know, this fella is making 100 cap. And it's not just 100 cap, he does it for first caps, 50 caps. And it's a it's a microcosm of what he seems to be like and why they love him so much is he's just looking for ways to show that he respects and cares and what you're doing is important, not just to you, but to your family uh, and to all of us, you know. And uh, it sounds so obvious and so simple, but the effect he's had um, in terms of creating this group who would die for each other, um, who know each other in a, in a better way or more deeper understanding of where they've all come from you, you hear them talking now not about it, my country my island you know I know how important playing for this island is and that goes back to that whole thing about the north and you know what they did during with, with Brian Driscoll and Craig Doyle and David Irwin coming in to explain how hard it was for the for some players from Ulster to go and wear the green jersey of Ireland you know and, and it's just again it's, it's our history and we should all know about it but sometimes you just push that away. And Farrell has who's not Irish, you know, he's an English man. Um, he's come into Ireland and he's, he's bought into all this and and um, embraced it and and tried to educate the group. He's phenomenally impressive. It's it's a, like obviously he can he has charisma, right? But I think he doesn't lean on that all the time. He's he's out there working hard to try and be a better coach, a better leader, um, a better communicator. Like, even his press conferences uh, and the way he talks to the press is way better now than it was, you know? Like, I know Paul O'Connell said, Paul O'Connell, like, would listen to a lot of really good motivators and, um, like, he's in awe of how Faz can get up and just own the room for 10 minutes and Mm -hmm. own it. Like, own it. Have everyone hanging off every word. And that's not a skill you can maybe learn, but I think he's worked to even get better at us, if you, if, if you understand me.
0: Yeah, well, that's a respect thing that yeah. you can have, but you can quickly lose respect in that role. And you would have worked with coaches before where you're just shaking your head, like this bloke doesn't get it. And it's the human side that generally, for many people that I know, I'd say mostly, would have the most effect on you as a player, as a young man, being able to trust someone at that level, but the human element of feeling loved, of feeling respected, the family element, which is everything for people, isn't it? Yeah. And you think it, it sounds so simple. You said, "Oh, it's it sounds simple," but for whatever reason, many coaches either don't have that within them because of the way that their mind works, or they're old school. I don't really know, but like you know, the Farrell name is is just a phenomenon. You look yeah. at Owen and everything, and he'll come through. All the, all the shit that he's been through is a Farrell. He's going to get that. But the irony in the fact that you've got an Englishman there who ended up getting sacked after the 2015 World Cup has got the opportunity to create the best legacy of any professional team, sporting team in Ireland, by going to a World Cup and potentially winning a World Cup. And we'd listen to that. It feels different. It looks different.
1: It's way different, Jim. I mean, like, the, and it's easy in hindsight because in 2019, the cracks were there leading into that World Cup in Japan. Right? Forget about other World Cups. I don't think we were ever... We were never number one in the world, you know, pre-World Cup the last time. We obviously, you know, had won at, at Six Nations and things like that. But um, 2019, 2018, we were number one in the world. Uh, we'd beaten the All Blacks at home. But in 2019, that Six Nations, you know, we were... There was cracks, you know what I mean? And in the, in the warm-up games, we got pumped by England. So you could say, oh, things have started to crack. But because it was Joe Schmidt and he was such a brilliant technician um, and had won, we were all like, oh, no, he's going to peak. He's keeping stuff back for the World Cup. Whereas this is more, uh, there's more strings to our bow. It's more relaxed. There's not going to be that mental you know, explosion, I don't think. you know your lead, Your senior players have been there, done that. They've lost and they've won. You know, so Peter Manney, Conor Murray, Johnny Sexton, et cetera, Tyke Furlong, they've won trophies, but they've also lost trophies and they know the dangers. And look, we could go into this World Cup in absolute flying form and just get beaten by a better team on the day in the knockout stages or in a quarter final and, and so be it. But I don't think it's going to be the same as the last one. I don't think we're going to shoot ourselves in the foot and we seem to have like loads of depth. Uh, but I, I think a lot of it's down to him and the coaching team like O'Connell. So apparently, like Farrell isn't massive on detail but Paul Connell is. You know what I mean? Um, you know, So he's, he's added, and he wasn't initially in his coaching group, he's added him in, he's moved Simon Easterby to defence. Simon Easterby was doing both um, and now our defence we only the six tries. So he's not afraid to make hard decisions. It would have been hard for him having worked with Simon Easterby under Joe Schmidt as assistants and kind of said, look, at when I get the job you're going to be doing lineouts and, and defence and then After a while, just looking and going, well, Paul will make us better. That's a hard conversation to have with your buddy, but he made that decision. So I don't like he's nice, and 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 a phenomenal leader and all stuff. But he also can make I think hard decisions for the betterment of the team, and we kind of need that as well. You know, you can't just roll into this um, drinking a Kool Aid. It's gonna be it's gonna be tough.
0: Mm. You said on any given day they could get beat by a better team, and it will be different if they don't win the World Cup. All this hysteria that we're building and talking about now like Johnny Sexton cementing him as one of the, the greatest of all times, which I put on social media once, and people were like, what are you talking about? Are you serious, whoever's writing that? If he goes on to win a World Cup, and this Ireland team do, we're talking about one of the greatest teams. Yeah, But to get to that point, and the history they've got in the World Cups, which isn't great, like this is, they're, they're, they're not their only opportunity, but the very best yeah. Opportunity to stay at the ring.
1: yeah, it is and I, but I think that that's where they want to be like they they've been number one in the world for a little while now, and they haven't talked about you know um the pressure of that they just they, they seem to be very focused on on now getting better like they they didn't play well against England. like that's the reality I and mean, they know that, and that was the first thing they said afterwards, so um they go back to the provinces, they get back together in camp. Um, there's loads more in them. There's loads more in them, and like we hadn't got ring roll. We've had lots of injuries in the Six Nations of key players, uh, like Furlong didn't play for the first few rounds. Those injuries have actually given us more depth. And if you remember the previous World Cup, you know when we we lost Argentina and Cardiff in a quarter final. We lost six players that week, and we just got blown away. So I don't think we could beat New Zealand or France if we lost six of our best players. But um, within reason, we've got you know more. Uh, more certainty around the next layer and the layer after that.
0: Who is the team that worries you? And we were talking about this in the green room around the way that the pool is drawn or the pools are drawn. So Ireland make it through the group first or second. Yeah. It will be what looks like France or New Zealand. Love to see Italy, but I don't think we will. But France or New Zealand. Which team do you think is the one for Ireland? Where? Or, on the given day, is yeah. the worry. I know they went to New Zealand. New Zealand for me is the, it's that one team that we're not really speaking about. I think where are they ranked in the world at the minute? Are they third or fourth, fourth potentially. Yeah, behind South Africa. But
1: I think I prefer to play New Zealand. To be honest, and look at the rugby championship is going to start soon, and we'll maybe change our change our mind. I think that's the, that's the problem for us is that we've been so focused on Six Nations and they've been you know obviously not playing or playing a bit of Super Rugby for for New Zealand and, and Australians I think I'm fascinated to see where they come back I don't know about New Zealand obviously New Zealand have announced um, Scott Robertson coming in a few I, cracks in camp then, yeah. if that's happening do you know what I mean uh, so, yeah. Yeah, so I yeah. don't think there is I've never seen them go into a World Cup on kind of such a bad run of form maybe not sure like Joe wanted the job for, you know it's, 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 it's a little bit fractured and maybe that's an opportunity for us uh, France I think you know Galtier said after the Wales game you know we're, we're in pole position and I think you know the home crowd they'll have a good prep and they've got five or six players who can just take a game away from me in, in a blink of an eye whereas New Zealand obviously have that talent but there might be just a little bit of uncertainty in the overall scheme there which which may mean they're an easier an easier team to play against never easy but a, a lighter fixture
0: Any other teams worry you? I mean England, I, I gave, England gave them a, a game a stuffy yeah. game just yeah. for whatever reason we know that that History there, Wales has been a banana skin game as well. Is there any of the teams out there that worry you from Australia, an Australian perspective? I mean,
1: what will Eddie do with Australia? You know what I mean? Will he? They weren't far off us. They've got some good athletes in November. Can Eddie Jones get that World Cup cycle that he normally likes four years in in, in one year? Like, I think Eddie Jones is smart. He's a smart coach. I know. I wouldn't like to work with him, but I no, agree. For like a short, like for those Australian players, you know, a year with Eddie to go through a soft side of the World Cup there's enough talent there to do something, I think. I so they're the ones, obviously South Africa, Power, Razzie, Jack Ninabar, but I I think Australia are the dark horses for me.
0: Really? Yeah. Interesting.
1: Yeah.
0: And the million dollar question, do you think Ireland will win it? I genuinely do. Do you think they'll win I the World Cup? I didn't
1: think, I wasn't sure uh, until this weekend and I saw how we didn't play well against England. I know there's a red card, but we still got a bonus point, you know, to get, where our our defence and our attack are both showing like ways of being really adaptable um, and we're finding different ways to beat teams. So for me, I, I think there's no reason why like the, the only reason the past world cup failures will affect this group is if they let us. I I, I think they're, they're smart enough not to, not to let us um, and realize what they've built up since. And this team is different than the Brian Driscoll team. This team is different than the Ron Agar team. This is this team. And they've just gone to New Zealand last summer, won a test series went unbeaten in November, beat South Africa and Australia, okay, it's a home, and now had a decent, you know, very good Six Nations, and it's this calendar year, so, we, like, we don't have to, it's short-term, it's not, it's not far away, so if you're informed now, you have every reason to believe you're informed then. What does it do to the country, if anything? Does it elevate uh, it'll be massive. It even more? It'd be massive, like, the, oh, the hype, the hype, <laughs> the hype last week for a Grand Slam game against mm. England, but everyone, and all the Irish public have been to World Cups and, come back you know with her head in her hands and there's a lot of hurt there but France is obviously accessible There'll be people flying in and out you know we'll get tickets the atmosphere would be brilliant France is a great place to host a, a World Cup whether it's football or soccer or, uh, and Olympics to come I think it'll be it'll be magic and uh, I, I, the country will go absolutely bananas you know oh, it just, doesn't, we don't have, we don't need much to, to to go crazy so yeah it'd be
0: mental and you know the the pools how do they cross over then so say Ireland play New Zealand in yeah. the quarterfinal. Then from the semi, they'll cross over from there. Yeah. And then what they could, and it could potentially be France. I think so. In the final, that's yeah. how it will work. Yeah. Oh, could you imagine? Mm. <laughs> I can't wait. No. I cannot wait. Bernard, just last before you go, without bringing the tone down, have you had some concussion problems after rugby? I think we were talking about yeah. that. And the reason why I ask, um, not that I have, but I'm going through this. There's a, a kind of dementia prevention workshop that i'm i've put myself forward through and i'm going to a thing up in edinburgh well i'm in edinburgh already in may and i know a few of the players were on there and the things that have been put in place by different unions and world rugby and i'm going to be part of this study mainly because my granddad and nan both died of dementia but obviously because everything that's happening now and they're like preventative Mm. things which you can do, you need to be 40 or sure. over to okay. go through and then they, so they scan, I'll get a scan now and then you'll get scanned in two or three years but there's blood tests, saliva tests, co- cognitive tests, but then also exercises that can help okay, well, your brain and stuff like that. Have you been through a similar no, process? So, you no, know, um,
1: my last year, so um, I was getting a lot of concussions but it wasn't, I didn't take insurance case, it wasn't really why I retired. Well, it was a cumulative of knees and back and whatever but Basically, my my the club. I I would probably like to do one more year. Um, and then my doctor just said, my club doctor just said, look at, we're not going to sign you off. You know, you're you're getting too many concussions. And what happened then was I wrote an autobiography, or I had a ghostwriter uh, who who wrote it for me. And every week you'd meet him for a coffee, and that's how that's how it works. And effectively, at the end of the year when he come back with the with the book, like I had some. I think it said I had twenty four concussions that year. Whatever you know, because there were many concussions, and and I don't know what when your concussions, but. I became very comfortable being concussed right? and that sounds stupid, but people think concussions is like laid out in the ground, mm. stretch it off or falling around a place. I was getting these little like bouts of dizziness or split migraine or, or, lack of vision. And I knew if I could buy myself 40 seconds, 60 seconds, I'd actually be okay again. Was I a hundred percent? Maybe not, whatever, but like I used to pretend I was winded or had a stinger or buying a contact lens out or uh, and just to get that, Few few seconds to kind of come back or to come right, and um, so that that that's where that came from. So I had a lot of concussions my last year, but thank thankfully, I've had no repercussions since. And when this concussion case thing was was bubbling over, obviously someone said to the the law firm, but Jackman is on the record as saying he got a lot of concussions. And they contacted me, but I've had no symptoms or issues, so I'm not part of that. Um, so that that's that's. What, now I am an ambassador for Acquired Brain Injury Ireland, and I, I I'm very conscious of the game needing to be safe. But the game was unbelievably good to me. I love the game, still very good to me. Um, and I, as I said, I've I've come away from it relatively, you know. Um, Unscathed, you know, and, and up to now I've had no issues. So, no, I, I haven't. I haven't. I, it's probably something I should do, but um I'm I'm 100 apart from probably doing, talking shite <laughs> No,
0: I'm the same. I'm the same. The game's been great to me, but I feel like a bit of a responsibility because it's been offered to me yeah. to not take it. I'm not in denial. Like, nah nothing's going to happen. Mine's around the history of my family, um and just wanted to make sure that you know if I've got an opportunity to get sure. my brain scan, blood taken and there's different changes and by that point there's like methods in place to be like look you need to do a crossword or you need to do sudoku or something like that stuff that i don't do or my new year's resolution is to read more books and i've not read one yet as in to go down that then i'll push myself down that
1: yeah just on uh, just on i am actually doing a full health check thursday morning one of those mot mot in ireland for when you get your car checked so because tom tierney uh, was a guy I played with in Connacht and he Ian he passed away a couple of weeks ago just dropped dead and um so I think I'm gonna do that and, and and just you know just get checked out. But no concussion wise all good.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think we're at that scary age. I was chatting to Frank Murphy about it. You know, it just feels like so much closer yeah. than when you're a young lad. Sure, you know. These tragedies don't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Bernard Jackman, it's been awesome to have you in the studio in London, the fourth member of the rugby pod (laughs) boy band. There's two of us in here. Thanks very much. Thanks, buddy. Thank you.
1: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes.